This is the American Tapestry Project, where we seek to weave America's many stories into a tapestry of American possibilities. Welcome back, fellow weavers, and if this is your first time, welcome. Welcome to the American Tapestry Project. I'm Andrew Roth, a scholar-in-residence at the Jefferson Educational Society in Erie, Pennsylvania. Before we begin today, a short housekeeping note. Occasionally, we'll be interrupted by the sound of an old-fashioned school bell. Today's sidebars include, Who invented candy corn? Do witches really ride broomsticks? Who was Squanto? Who wrote, Mary had a little lamb? And, lastly, who wrote, Over the woods to grandfather's house we go? The school bell signals a sidebar we'll explore. What is the American Tapestry Project? The American Tapestry seeks to find the pattern of American culture created by the many threads of our many stories. Threads, which are what St. Augustine meant when he said, a nation is a multitude of rational beings united by the common objects of their love. So, we have to ask ourselves, what do we love in common? Although in these Fox News riven times it's hard to remember, among the many things Americans love in common are holidays. According to timeanddate.com, not the most profound source, but still reliable, Americans celebrate 256 holidays. 256 holidays. They range from August's deeply banal National Watermelon Day to the most profound secular holiday celebrating freedom, July 4th. To many religious holidays, including the Hindu festival of Diwali celebrating the victory of good over evil and light over darkness, to Easter and the Christian celebration of Christ's resurrection, to Yom Kippur, the Jewish holy day of atonement for one's personal sins, to Muslim observance of Ayy Malad Unnabi, peace be upon him, the Prophet Muhammad's birthday, to, as we enter the winter holiday season, which we'll look into in depth next month, the winter holiday season celebrating Christmas, Jesus' birth and New Year's Day, on the eve of which some of you will sing Old Lang Syne, not aware that it is an old Scots song of friendship. Holidays. They're as American as apple pie. They can also be sorted into the American Tapestry Project's major threads. Freedom at home and abroad. July 4th, Memorial Day, Constitution Day, Veterans Day, and many others. Freedom's Fault Lines, Tales of Race and Gender, Martin Luther King Jr. Day, Alaska's Elizabeth Paratrovich Day, which we explored, you might recall, in episode number nine, Patriots Day in Massachusetts, and our newest national holiday, Juneteenth, celebrating slavery's end. To the American dream in any number of commercially inspired holidays, Labor Day, and those newbies, Black Friday and Cyber Monday. To holidays celebrating our immigrant origins, like St. Patrick's Day, Columbus Day, which is morphing into Italian-American Day and Indigenous Peoples Day, and a long list of ethnic holidays like the Welsh St. David's Day, Dutch-American Day, and the increasingly popular Cinco de Mayo. So, yes, Americans do, despite many bottom-feeding politicians and media pundits' efforts to divide them, Americans do share some common objects of their love, those things that bind a polyglot people into a nation. Holidays. Holidays are a big part of what we share in common. Although Halloween was two weeks ago and Thanksgiving isn't for another two weeks, 
Today, in this episode of the American Tapestry Project, let's explore Halloween and Thanksgiving. Last month, returning from a bike ride around Presque Isle, I noticed at the corner of 12th and Peninsula Drive a band of itinerant peddlers had set up shop peddling Halloween costumes and other accessories. If I read it correctly, their low-budget sign hawking costumes for adults, children, and even pets announced all wares under $11. Where, I wondered, did this mid-autumn, although nowadays it seems like late summer, this mid-autumn holiday custom of tricking or treating, bobbing for apples and dressing up like hobgoblins and otherworldly sprites and comic book superheroes, where did all of this originate? And what is it about bonfires? And what does the word Halloween mean? And what are a few of the great Halloween and Harvest poems and songs? We'll look at the answer to the third question later, but the answer to the second question is straightforward. The answer to the first, however, is both more involved and more interesting. As we'll hear in episode 17, exploring how Americans celebrate Christmas and New Year's, the custom of singing Old Lang Syne has Scottish roots, actually Celtic roots. Similarly, Halloween has Scots and Celtic origins. It was popularized in the 18th century by Scotland's national poet, Robert Burns, in his poem, his 1785 poem, Halloween. Describing the gathering of locals on All Hallows' Eve to collect crops, to feast and party, to tell fortunes disclosing one's true love, to trick-or-treat and to frolic with the opposite sex, the poem became a source catalog documenting Scots folk customs celebrating All Hallows' Eve, All Saints' Day, and All Souls' Day. The three days, the three days are collectively known as All Hallowtide, that portion of the church year dedicated to remembering the dead, including saints, hallows, martyrs, and all the departed. As Corey E. Andrews observed in his essay, Footnoted Folklore, Robert Burns' Halloween, at 252 lines, among Burns' longest poems, Halloween offers a wealth of folkloric practice skillfully interwoven within an episodic narrative. Andrews also notes that the poem is more highly regarded is more highly regarded as an anthropological account than as a literary work. Regardless of its literary merits, almost all the traditions we in the English-speaking world associate with Halloween, well, they come from Burns's poem, which is ironic since Burns wrote it in Scott's dialect as a distinct rejection of English encroachment. But that would be another program. Before we explore the anthropology of Halloween customs and the origin of the word itself, let's listen to Cameron Goodall reciting Burns' Halloween. Goodall recorded this version at the Burns Huff Club, Halloween Supper at the Globe Pub, in Dumfries, Scotland, on October 30, 2014. Here's Goodall giving voice to Burns' first two stanzas. Upon that night, when fairies lift on castles down and dance, or o'er the lees in splendid blaze on sprightly coursers prance or for Colleen the root is tame beneath the moon's pale beams there up the cove to stray and rove among the rocks and streams to sport that nicht among the bony winding banks where doon runs wimpling clear where Bruce Yance ruled the martial ranks and shook the carrick spear. Some merry, friendly country folks together did convene to burn their nuts and poo their stokes and hold the Halloween foo blithe that night. 
Briefly, translating the dialect, the poem's first two stanzas say that on Halloween night, a night when fairies light the sky, beneath the moon's pale beams, the good country folk dance across the meadows, and, riding sprightly horses prancing along a route to a small cove, where among the rocks and streams the country folk will sport. That is, they'll play and party through the night along the winding banks of the River Dune, which runs clear, where, once, Robert Bruce bore arms against the English. And in their sporting, the folk will burn their nuts and pile their corn stalks, have a blithe, festive time, coupling if they can. That's the first two stanzas. The remaining 200 lines or so depict the folk at their festive merriment. Where did all of this begin? Well, let's start with the word Halloween itself. What's its etymology, the origin of the word Halloween? As noted at the online etymology dictionary, Halloween is a Scottish shortening of All Hallow Even, Eve of All Saints Day, the last night of October, the last night of the year in the old Celtic calendar, where it was Old Year's Night, a night for witches. As Wikipedia has it, in Scots, the word Eve for evening is even, and this is contracted to een, e apostrophe en, or just simply een. That is, eventually, the apostrophe just disappeared. What about hallow? What does it mean? As a verb, hallow means to honor as holy or sacred. As a noun, hallow's archaic meaning is a saint or holy person. Someone or something that is hallowed is honored as a holy person or holy ground. For example, in the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be thy name means that the Lord's name is holy, consecrated, and sacred, and to be revered. In the Gettysburg Address, Lincoln said, we cannot hallow this ground because those who died here have already made it holy and sacred. Over time, All Hallows Even evolved into Halloween, which shortened into Halloween. Eventually, the apostrophe gets dropped. Got that? Okay, so much for the word's origins. But what does it mean? It simply defines the night before the Christian holy days, holidays, Holy Days, All Hallows Day, or All Saints Day on November 1st, and All Souls Day on November 2nd. All Saints Day commemorates all saints of the church. All Souls Day honors all the faithful who have died and is sometimes known as the Day of the Dead. In the Roman Catholic tradition, All Saints Day is a holy day of obligation in which the faithful are obliged to participate in the Mass. What do the Christian holidays holy days have to do with the folk customs Burns describes. Everything and nothing. Regarding nothing, Burns sings in Halloween of the folk going into the fields that night to gather corn stalks, stack them high, and set them afire. Why fire? Halloween's origins, as we shall see, are rooted in an ancient harvest festival. Harvest festivals in pre-modern agricultural communities were two-edged. On one hand, they celebrated the harvest. On the other, they spoke with dread of the coming winter season, the season of ice. Fire was, is, life-affirming. It gives light to the coming darkness. It gives warmth to fend off the coming cold. Fire is an ancient symbol of life. Part of the life-affirming character of harvest festivals was a subtle, sometimes not so subtle, 
erotic undertone of sexuality driving the life force, reaffirming life's energy, staving off the cold, surviving until the next growing season. As a result, many of the evening's rituals and games had to do with trying to divine, trying to discover or predict, who your future lover might be. On the subtle level, there was the practice of spodomancy, reading the future in the ashes of a fire. Burn sings of the folk burning hazelnuts in the hearth, seeking their lover's initials in the ashes, or bobbing for apples, which nowadays is a children's game, but not originally. Apples are an ancient symbol of temptation and sexuality. Think of Adam and Eve. Having bitten the apple, what was it Adam and Eve first discovered? That they were naked. People bob for apples in one of two ways. First, almost always women, but sometimes men too, stood with their hands tied behind them trying to bite, to catch, an apple swinging on a string. Or, second, and more familiar to us, they knelt before a tub of water with apples floating in it. The first person to capture an apple, like the wedding tradition of the bridesmaid's garter, the first person to catch the bobbing apple would be the next to marry. Or, like Jenny in Burns's poem, they peered into a mirror while biting an apple to discover their lover. And, not so subtly, Burns sings of Nellie, who lost her tap pickle maced while kittling with Rob that night. Tap pickle maced was a Scots euphemism for a girl losing her virginity, and kittlin meant to cuddle. So, in Burns's poem, Nellie lost her virginity cuddling in a haystack with Rob on Halloween. Byrne also has his festive folk telling stories about witches and ghosts and singing merry songs from which they from which they did not weary. But Burns did not sing of the Christian holy days. So what's the connection? One of the early Christian church's strategies in converting the pagans was to co-opt their holidays and rituals, transforming them into Christian feast days and holidays. For example, Saturnalia, the Roman midwinter festival of feasting and gift-giving celebrating the sun god Saturn at the winter solstice, became Christmas. Valentine's Day, which was originally St. Valentine's Day, traces its roots back to the Roman fertility and purification ritual of Lupercalia on February 14th. In fact, the word February comes from the root februar to purify. And why is the Feast of the Resurrection, Easter, called Easter, a word which does not appear in Scripture, because Ostaro was a Nordic celebration of the vernal equinox rejoicing nature's springtime rebirth. Eostra, a Nordic goddess, was its patron. Eostra, Easter, was associated with fecundity and fertility, symbolized by eggs, baby chicks, and those wild propagators, rabbits. So too, Halloween, whose roots can be traced to the ancient festival of Samhain, Spelled S-A-M-H-I-N, it is pronounced S-O-W-W-I-N, Samhain. There is a wealth of information available on Samhain. I'm neither an anthropologist nor a folklorist, so some of the sources I use to develop this, including any number of books and articles, well, some of the sources you can find on the web, such as History.com, of course, Wikipedia, BBC.com, BrownUniversity.edu, LearnReligions.com, Scotsman.com, and, and a number of others. Samhain was a Celtic festival. The Celts occupied northern France, Brittany, England, in particular the south and west to Cornwall, Wales, Scotland, and Ireland. 
For the Celts, November 1st was New Year's Day, the beginning of the darker half of the year. Samhain was a harvest festival denoting the end of summer and winter's onset. Since the Celtic day began and ended with sunset, they celebrated it on October 31st, the last day of the year, with great festivals feasting in the opening of the ancient burial mounds. The Celts believed that the living and the dead mingled on Samhain, when the ghosts of the dead returned, threatening to interfere with the harvest, the storing of crops, and generally wreaking havoc. It was a time of the year of both celebration, as we mentioned earlier about all harvest festivals, a time of celebration if the harvest was good, and a time of dread if it was not. In a northern agricultural society, worry about having enough food to survive the long, cold winters caused great anxiety. Winter was the dying season. The Druids, the Celtic priest, took the opportunity the Spirit's presence afforded to prophesize the future, which prophecies were a source of hope during the long, dark, cold winters. They lit huge bonfires, sacrificed animals and crops, wore costumes called guising to frighten away the ghost. The custom of guising, related to the word disguising, is the origin of Halloween costumes. Remember that the next time some pipsqueak Spider-Man knocks on your door seeking a treat. To preserve the animals and crops through the winter months, the Celts propitiated, that is, bribed, the spirits with gifts of bread and mead. It was believed that the souls of family members visited their homes seeking nourishment. From these two traditions evolved the custom of trick-or-treating, in which folk went about in costume singing songs for cakes and ale. You might note the similarity to the custom of Christmas caroling, which had very similar roots. The Christian connection occurred late in the first millennium after Christ. Originally dedicated by Pope Boniface IV in May 609, the Roman pantheon honored all martyrs and began the Catholic feast of All Martyrs Day. In the 9th century, the 800s, Pope Gregory III moved the festival's date to November 1st, All Saints Day, and established November 2nd as All Souls Day to honor all the Christian dead. Note the date. Why would Gregory move the date to November 1st? Think St. Patrick converting the pagan Irish in the mid-late first millennium. It was Pope Gregory's tactic to co-opt the pagan holy day of Samhain and replace it with a church-approved holiday. In the newly converted Christian Northwestern Europe, All Souls Day was celebrated exactly as Samhain had been, with bonfires, festivals, and feasting. Now, however, the costume celebrants wore depicted saints, angels, and devils. The tradition of going door-to-door seeking soul cakes and other fare continued. If the request was denied, a trick was played upon the stingy homeowner. All Saints Day was also sometimes called All Hallowmas, or Mass or Service for the Dead, as we noted above in the etymology of the word Halloween. The night before it, October 31st, the original date for Samhain became All Hallows' Eve, morphing into the compound word Halloween, with the apostrophe ultimately dropped. And, to quote Kurt Vonnegut, hey presto, a new holiday. Halloween came to America with the earliest European settlers. In Puritan New England, it was scarcely acknowledged, although they did find some time to hang witches. But in Catholic Maryland and the Anglican colonies to the south, it took root. As in Europe, it was a harvest festival, a harvest festival in which neighbors told each other's fortunes, bobbed for apples, kittled in haystacks, lit bonfires, told stories, danced, sang, and, of course, feasted. The stories they were told were, 
What else? Ghost stories. The explosion of German, and particularly Irish Catholic immigrants in the mid-19th century, well, that drove the holiday's popularity. As the century wore on, it was marred with some violence and pranks that got out of hand, like putting the neighbor's cow on the roof of his barn, a neat trick not easily explained. Other tricks included tipping over outhouses and tearing up cabbage patches. Near the end of the century, mingling Halloween with Thanksgiving, Irish immigrant children known as ragamuffins from the poorer sections of town, dressed up in ragged costumes, hence the name ragamuffins, went trick-or-treating with the accent on tricking doing a bit of damage in the finer neighborhoods. The practice was banned, but, of course, never completely stamped out. As the 19th century ended, however, Halloween became a community holiday of neighborhood gatherings featuring seasonal foods. Think pumpkins and apples, games and costumes. As most things American, the holiday became secularized in the 20th century and increasingly focused on children. In short, its religious character, both pagan and Christian, its religious character receded as it became a holiday for childish pranks and trick-or-treating, with the ancient custom of going door-to-door in search of treats now strictly the province of children. As celebrated in the 1952 Disney film, Trick or Treat, featuring Donald Duck and his nephews, Huey, Dewey, and Louie, during the post-World War II baby boom, dressing children up as goblins and skeletons canvassing the neighborhood for inexpensive candy treats, well, that transformed Halloween into a generally harmless exercise in communal fun. That bell signals our first sidebar. Where did candy corn originate? Of all the Halloween candies, the most common is candy corn. But where did it come from? Roughly shaped like a kernel of corn, recall burning corn stalks to celebrate Samhain, corn and corn stalks are common harvest symbols. Candy corns, familiar colors of yellow, orange, and white, have become harvest symbols to generations of American children. Originally called chicken feed, candy corn was first produced in the 1880s by the Winderall Candy Company, whose employee, George Renninger, invented it. For a while, it was manufactured by the Gillett's Confectionery Company, better known as Jelly Bean. But today, Brock's Confections is the major producer of candy corn, churning out over 7 billion pieces a year. Now, overwhelmingly associated with Halloween, at first candy corn was one of the more well-known penny candies eaten year-round. It became associated with Halloween during the 1950s as a cheap and plentiful treat for baby boomer trick-or-treaters. Candy corn also qualifies as one of the American Tapestry's commercial holidays, since the National Confectioners Association anointed Halloween Eve, the night before Halloween, October 30th, as National Candy Corn Day. Today, Halloween is one of the fastest-growing commercial holidays. Currently ranked number six by the National Retail Federation Index of Holiday Spending, it is gaining momentum as a renewed holiday extravaganza with people now decorating their homes and yards with witches, giant spiderwebs, pumpkins, real and fake, and other seasonal decorations. The Retail Federation reports that consumers spent $102 per capita on Halloween in 2021, up almost 25% from 2020. Three trends are driving this increased spending. First, it's not just for kids anymore, as adults have taken to dressing up and households without children have become party givers. Two, Halloween home decoration sales are expected to reach an all-time high of $3.3 billion. And three, 
It's spooky September as more and more consumers plan to get a head start on the holiday. Pretty soon we're going to see Christmas in July and Halloween in late May. There once was a sad little goblin who had a broken broom. When he went anywhere it would wobble in the air and his heart would fill with gloom. He tried so hard to fix it every night But he just couldn't get it working right The wobbling goblin with the broken broom Could never fly too high For right at the takeoff Another piece would break off And soon he would be dangling in the sky Each evening just as he would leave the ground his radio would say Control tower to goblin Your broomstick is wobbling You'd better make a landing right away That was a clip from Rosemary Clooney's The Wobbly Goblin, which Alexandra Petrie, in a recent Washington Post survey of the 50 best Halloween songs of all time, well, she listed it at number 50 with Roy Rogers' number 49 with Punky Pumpkin, the theme from The Phantom of the Opera at 46, the time warp from the Rocky Horror Picture Show, see Susan Sarandon before she became a star, The Doors, People Are Strange at number 34, Evil Woman at 19 by Electric Light Orchestra, David Bowie's Space Oddity at number 16, Psycho Killer by Talking Heads at number 13, The Addams Family Theme and Ghostbusters by Ray Parker Jr. at numbers number 6 and 7 respectively. Who knew there was such a list? The Doors, People Are Strange, at number 34, would have been right at home at any Sawin celebration. Here's a clip. People are strange when you're a stranger. Faces look ugly when you're alone. Women seem wicked when you're unwanted. Streets are uneven when you're down. When you're strange, faces come out of the rain. When you're strange, no one remembers your name. When you're strange, when you're strange, when you're strange. People are strange when you're a stranger. Faces look ugly when you're alone. Women seem wicked when you're unwanted. Streets are uneven when you're down. As strange as people can be, what is the number one ranked Halloween song of all time? It's almost too obvious, but at most such listings you'll discover Bobby Boris Pickett and the Crypt Kickers, 1962, Monster Mash. A native of Somerville, Massachusetts, Bobby Pickett, who died in 2007, was a singer and songwriter most famous for the Monster Mash, which, after being rejected by almost every major recording label, appeared in the fall of 1962 satirizing the current dance crazes, the twist, and the mashed potatoes. Pickett and the Crip Kickers also recorded number 40 on that Washington Post Top 50 Halloween songs, The Transylvania Twist. Monster Mash was an immediate hit, climbing to number one on Billboard's Hot 100 chart and selling over a million copies. 
Parodied numerous times, loved and loathed, the Monster Mash sings... monster from his slab began to rise and suddenly to my surprise he did the match he did the monster match the monster match it was a graveyard smash he did the match it caught on in a flash he did the match he did the monster match from my laboratory in the castle east to the master bedroom where the vampires feast the ghouls all came from their humble abodes to get a jolt from my electrode. They did the mash. They did the monster mash. The monster mash. It was a graveyard smash. They did the mash. It caught on in a flash. They did the mash. They did the monster mash. The zombies were having fun. The party On a different note, there are scores, no, hundreds of Harvest and Halloween poems, ranging from John Keats's To Autumn, Carl Sandburg's Theme in Yellow, Ken Nesbitt's Halloween Party, James Wright's Autumn Begins in Martin's Ferry, Ohio, and, of course, James Whitcomb Riley's Old Chestnut, When the Frost is on the Pumpkin. But I love Adela Crapsey's Brief November Night, which in its entirety captures the essence of the season in a northern town. Here's Crapsey's November Night. Listen, with faint dry sound, like steps of passing ghosts, the leaves, frost-crisped, break from the trees and fall. That's the entire poem. Or, from the other side of the world, Li Po captures in far fewer words the spirit of some of Burns' young people coupling in autumn. Here's Li Po's Autumn River Song. The moon shimmers in green water. White herons fly through the moonlight. The young man hears a girl gathering water chestnuts into the night, singing. They paddle home together. Those fingers in my hair That sly come hither stare That strips my conscience bare it's witchcraft And I've got no defense for it The heat is too intense for it What good would common sense for it do? Cause it's witchcraft Wicked witchcraft Why witches? Why broomsticks? Do witches really ride broomsticks? Robert Herrick's 17th century The Hag describes a witch astride her broom riding the night sky. Herrick writes, The hag is astride this night for to ride, the devil and she together, through thick and through thin, now out and then in, though there ne'er so foul be the weather. Herrick wrote in the 17th century, the 1600s, when witch fever gripped Europe and Puritan North America. Maybe in a future episode we'll look at that witch hysteria in 17th century Massachusetts and Connecticut, but for now, do witches really ride broomsticks? 
Setting aside the question of whether or not there really are witches, what is it about brooms? In a marvelous short article at History.com, Sarah Pruitt examines the legend. First, sweeping is an ancient custom, whether of hearth or threshold, and the first sweeping devices were collections of branches or twigs. The word broom, Pruitt notes, comes from an actual plant or shrub used to make sweeping devices. First a synonym, it eventually became the noun describing a sweeping device, a broom. Brooms were primarily associated with women. They became a powerful symbol of female domesticity. In a quick irony, however, the first witch to confess to riding a broomstick was a man, William Edelin. He confessed under torture and was doomed to a dungeon for life. The earliest known images of witches riding broomsticks date from around 1451. In the drawings, the women soar through the air astride their brooms. Anthropologist Robin Skelton suggests the roots of the connection between witches and brooms are in an ancient pagan fertility ritual, a ritual in which rural farmers would leap and dance astride poles, pitchforks, or brooms in the light of the full moon to encourage the growth of their crops. The broomstick dance, Skelton suggests, became confused with common accounts of witches flying through the night on their way to orgies and other illicit meetings. Broomsticks were also thought to be the perfect vehicle for special ointments and salves witches brewed to help them fly. Concoctions of known herbal hallucinogenics, these salves and ointments were rubbed on the body and bodily orifices where they were absorbed into the bloodstream, causing hallucinations and visions. Without getting too graphic, one of the most absorbent areas of the body is female genitalia, and you can complete the image with the broom's phallic implications. It's impossible to know whether these stories, reported at the height of the late medieval witch hysteria, are true, but the hysteria is true. Associated with all of this, back to brooms and sweeping, is the image of the broom by the fireplace and tales of witches swishing up their chimneys to prowl the night skies. But, if it's witches one wants, who better than Shakespeare? Double, double, toil and trouble, fire burn and cauldron bubble. In Shakespeare's Macbeth, Macbeth encounters three weirds, Elizabethan English for witch, a haggard old woman with magical powers, three weirds who prophesize his future. The scene is memorable. Here is the witch's song from Macbeth. In the cauldron, boil and bake. I am newt and toe of frog, wool of bat and tongue of dog, adder's fork and blind worm's sting, lizard's leg and owlet's wing. For a charm of powerful trouble, like the hell broth, boil and bubble. Of course, if it's the thrill of prickly hairs on the back of your neck accompanied by the musicality of a poet who knew both how to scare you and to make you like being scared, there's always Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven. If the Halloween customs of bobbing for apples, burning hazelnuts to read your future lover's initials in the ashes, looking into a mirror before another mirror all spoke of the need to couple to fend off winter's chill, 
Then Poe inverts it as a lover mourning his dead Lenore sinks slowly into madness. Here is the master of ghoul, Christopher Lee, reading the opening stanzas of Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven. Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered weak and weary over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore, while I nodded, nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping, as of someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. To some visitor, I muttered, tapping at my chamber door, only this and nothing more. Ah, distinctly I remember it was in the bleak December, and each separate dying ember wrought its ghost upon the floor. Eagerly I wished the morrow. Vainly I had sought to borrow from my books surcease of sorrow. Sorrow for the lost Lenore, for the rare and radiant maiden whom the angels named Lenore. Nameless here forevermore. to be thankful for I haven't got a great big yacht to sail from shore to shore still I've got plenty to be thankful for I've got plenty to be thankful for no private car no caviar no carpet on my floor still I've got There are not a lot of great Thanksgiving tunes, but they're Bingles, Bing Crosby's, I've got plenty to be thankful for. Well, that fills a lot of gaps. What could be controversial about Thanksgiving Day? How about this? Americans celebrate Thanksgiving Day not because of the pilgrims and the Wampanoag feasting, at least according to legend, at Plymouth in 1621, but because of two 19th century American women of whom I am all but certain you have never heard. Who is the mother of Thanksgiving? Who rode over the river and through the wood? To grandfather's house we go. Well, regarding controversial, as we have learned, just about anything can elicit multiple opinions. Splitting along political lines, wearing masks, and getting vaccinated to protect one's neighbors and oneself from a raging pandemic is either an infringement upon personal liberty or an expression of social solidarity. Thanksgiving can also elicit varied reactions. Most people enjoy it as a communal taking pause to reflect upon one's good fortune, to overindulge eating beyond one's fill, and then, in a trip to fan-induced torpor, to nod off glaze-eyed watching that venerable Thanksgiving tradition, football, either the original classic noon game featuring the woeful Detroit Lions, or later in the afternoon, those Johnny-come-latelys, the Dallas Cowboys, and then, even later, a nightcap of more football all the while awaiting the next act of excess, Black Friday's kickoff to the Christmas shopping spree, only to discover that it began online in October, or was it September? Others, however, have taken to quibbling about what was the first Thanksgiving. 
Thanksgiving Day's origins are not nearly as exotic as Halloween's. The custom is ancient, but the American version is a direct result of the Protestant Reformation. In particular, the English Reformation under Henry VIII in the late 16th century, which gave rise to a desire to purify the newly sprung Church of England from all its popish, read Roman Catholic, vestiges. Two of the emergent ideas were the idea of days of fasting and humiliation, to meditate upon whatever the current travail was bedeviling society, and days of thanksgiving, to meditate upon one's good fortune and to thank the Lord for His beneficence. Without getting into all the details of whether the Puritans thought of this in England or during their sojourn in Leiden before setting off for the New World, the first English settlers in the wilds of what later became New England brought the custom to America. As every schoolchild once knew, the Pilgrims celebrated what most people assumed to be the first Thanksgiving in November 1621 at Plymouth Plantation in Massachusetts. But were they the first? Was it the traditional Pilgrim date in November of 1621? Or did it occur earlier? For example, with an eye for the trivial, some scholars note that in 1565 a Spanish explorer invited members of a local tribe to a dinner in St. Augustine, Florida to thank God for his crew's safe arrival. Others point to December 4, 1619, when British settlers along Virginia's James River issued a proclamation designating the date as a day of thanksgiving to Almighty God. For Native Americans, it is not a day of thanks at all, but a national day of mourning celebrated at different locales across the country and since 1970 at Coles Hill, overlooking Plymouth Rock. Well, other claimants to the side, the first Thanksgiving, or the only one custom has decided counts, was in New England, but it wasn't at Plymouth Rock and it wasn't in November. It took place sometime between September and mid to late November, and it took place over three days. Held in the original settlement at Plymouth Plantation a short distance from Plymouth Rock, just about everything known about the event comes from a letter written by Edwin Winslow, who came on the Mayflower in 1620. The original attendees numbered about 50 of the Pilgrim settlers who had survived the first brutal winter, which killed almost half the original Mayflower arrivals. Now, the survivors wanted to celebrate their first successful New World harvest. It was a harvest festival. The Pilgrims were probably outnumbered more than two to one by their Native American guests, members of the Wampanoag tribe and their king Massasoit, that had helped them survive. In particular, they wanted, again as every schoolchild once knew, they wanted to honor Squanto, a tribe member who had been particularly helpful. The festivities included feasting, games, and military exercises. Regarding the feasting, the menu was quite different than what has become the traditional American Thanksgiving turkey dinner with stuffing, cranberry relish, corn, mashed potatoes, and gravy. The first celebrants feasted on fish and shellfish, fruits and vegetables like cabbage, Jerusalem artichokes, walnuts, chestnuts, garlic, and of course, cranberries. They did not serve potatoes, and they absolutely did not have pumpkin pie since they had no butter, flour, or even an oven. Another sidebar. Who was Squanto? During the Pilgrim's first winter in the wilds of the New World, Squanto ran interference as an interpreter and a guide between the indigenous people and the new settlers. Born in the late 16th century near what became Plymouth, Massachusetts, Squanto was twice kidnapped and twice sold into slavery. First, in 1605 by an English sea captain who used him as a guide along the Maine coast. Having learned English somehow, 
He escaped only to be captured a second time by English explorer Thomas Hunt, who sold him into slavery in Spain. Managing again somehow to escape, Squanto returned to North America in 1619, where, as we said, he became an interpreter and guide for the pilgrim settlers who arrived in 1620. When he returned to North America in 1619, however, he found his native tribe, the Patuxet, had been wiped out by smallpox. To survive, he joined the neighboring Wampanoags. In 1621, because he could speak English, Squanto acted as an interpreter between the pilgrims and the Wampanoag chief, Massasoit. In 1622, he helped the pilgrims find a lost boy and he helped them with their planning and fishing. This earned their increased trust. Not entirely benign, Squanto used his language skills and knowledge of English customs to gain power over his fellow indigenous people. Allegedly, he exaggerated his influence with the colonists. He threatened the native peoples that if they didn't do what he wanted, he'd have the English release the plague, which he claimed they were secretly storing in pits in the woods. Well, Squanto's story is a little more complicated than the old schoolbook textbook version of it, but nonetheless, caught up in the developing conflict between the settlers and the indigenous people, Squanto died circa November 1622. But the fact to remember is, there really was a Squanto. Some people, regarding Thanksgiving, perhaps yourself, wonder why some years it seems to come sooner and other years later. That is a byproduct of the vagaries of the calendar, but ever since 1941 it has been celebrated on the fourth Thursday in November. Why? How did that happen? Well, in 1863, President Abraham Lincoln responded to Sarah Josepha Hale's 36-year campaign to establish Thanksgiving as a national holiday. Lincoln issued a proclamation asking all Americans to thank God, to thank God for his tender care, and scheduling the last Thursday in November as a day of Thanksgiving. It remained that way until 1939, when President Franklin Roosevelt moved it back to the third Thursday in November to add an additional week of Christmas shopping. Roosevelt met such passionate resistance, interestingly enough, from merchants, but also other groups, such as athletic leagues, who didn't like the sudden change in scheduling. Well, in any event, Roosevelt met such passionate resistance to the change that in 1941, he reluctantly signed a bill making Thanksgiving the fourth Thursday in November. Who is the mother of Thanksgiving? Sarah Josepha Hale is the mother of Thanksgiving culminating her 36-year campaign to make Thanksgiving a national holiday, on September 28, 1863, she wrote a letter to President Abraham Lincoln asking him to have the day of our annual Thanksgiving made a national and a fixed union festival. As we said before, Lincoln did. So, who was Sarah Josepha Hale? Born in 1788, the daughter of a Revolutionary War veteran, her parents believed in equal education for both genders. She became a schoolteacher. In 1822, after the death of her husband, David Hale, she made two decisions. One, she wore black for the rest of her life as a sign of perpetual mourning. And two, in order to support herself, she became a writer. Her 1827 novel, Northwood, Life in the South, was one of the first written about slavery. Not yet an abolitionist, she supported the colonization movement to relocate freed slaves to Liberia and elsewhere. Her success as a novelist led to a position as editress 
an antique word, as editor of the Ladies' Magazine. In 1837, she became editor of Godey's Ladies' Book, the most influential women's magazine of the mid to late 19th century. Hale was considered the most important arbiter of American taste for middle-class women in matters of fashion, cooking, literature, and morality. Sarah Josepha Hale was the Oprah Winfrey and Martha Stewart of mid-19th century America. More importantly, she strongly advocated for the 19th century notion of home as the foundation of American life and for woman's role as the cornerstone upon which home rested. Think of Courier and Ives Prince and other examples of 19th century sentimentalism idealizing home and hearth. While an advocate for women's rights, Hale believed that women were the true conservators of peace and goodwill. She did not support women's suffrage. She believed in women's secret, silent influence upon male voters. But she was a complicated woman, negotiating rapidly changing social norms, norms she herself forced to change. For example, contradicting her image as keeper of the home flame, Hale was a founder of Vassar College and a powerful advocate for women's education. She wanted to open up the professions to women. She was an adamant opponent of slavery. She worked to preserve George Washington's estate at Mount Vernon and raised funds for the construction of Boston's Bunker Hill Monument. And, of course, she advocated for 36 years for Thanksgiving as a national holiday, finally prevailing upon President Lincoln in the year of Gettysburg. Her most famous composition, at least in the sense that it is still read, was a poem she published in her 1830 collection, Poems for Our Children. The poem was originally titled Mary's Lamb, but you know it as Mary Had a Little Lamb. Almost everyone knows its first quatrain, Mary Had a Little Lamb, its fleece was white as snow, and everywhere that Mary went, the lamb was sure to go. But how many, how many of you can recite the entire poem? Here is Sarah Josepha Hale's Mary Had a Little Lamb. Mary had a little lamb, its fleece was white as snow, and everywhere that Mary went, the lamb was sure to go. It followed her to school one day, which was against the rule. It made the children laugh and play to see a lamb at school. And so the teacher turned it out, but still it lingered near and waited patiently about till Mary did appear. Why does the lamb love Mary so? The eager children cry. Why, Mary loves the lamb, you know, the teacher did reply. Who wrote, over the river and through the wood, to grandfather's house we go? Published in 1844 as The New England Boy's Song About Thanksgiving Day, it was written by Lydia Maria Child for inclusion in her book, Flowers for Children. Child wrote it celebrating her childhood memories of visiting her grandparents. Although sometimes sung as going to grandmother's house, it was originally written going to grandfather's house. The composer who set it to music is unknown. Known variously as the New England Boy Song, or its first line, over the river, its title is now simply listed as Thanksgiving Day. It begins, Over the river and through the wood to grandfather's house we go. The horse knows the way to carry the sleigh through the white and drifted snow. Here is Lydia Maria Child's Thanksgiving Day. Over the river and through the wood to grandfather's house we go. The horse knows the way to carry the sleigh through the white and drifted snow. Over the river and through the wood, oh, how the wind does blow. It stings the toes and bites the nose as over the ground we go. 
over the river and through the wood, to have a first-rate play. Hear the bells ring, ting-a-ling-ding, hurrah for Thanksgiving Day. Over the river and through the wood, trot fast, my dapple gray. Spring over the ground like a hunting hound, for this is Thanksgiving Day. Over the river and through the wood, and straight through the barnyard gate. We seem to go extremely slow, it is so hard to wait. Over the river and through the wood, now grandmother's cap I spy. Hurrah for the fun, is the pudding done? Hurrah for the pumpkin pie. So, who was Lydia Maria Child? Well, she was no shrinking violet, and, I suspect, she was someone who irritated Sarah Josepha Hale. Although Child had started to write before she married and her husband did not die, his inability to earn a sustained income drove Child to follow Samuel Johnson's famous dictum. No one but a blockhead ever wrote for anything but money. Child became one of the most successful American writers of the 19th century. She was also an abolitionist, a women's rights activist, a Native American rights activist, a novelist, a journalist, and an opponent of American expansionism. If Sarah Josepha Hale was the Oprah Winfrey and Martha Stewart of the 19th century, then Lydia Maria Child was the 19th century's Gloria Steinem and Betty Friedan. Speaking openly and critically of issues like male dominance and white supremacy, she unsettled her audience's sparking backlash. She opposed the Mexican War and manifest destiny as inevitably leading to civil war over slavery's expansion. She was right. Like Hale, she became famous for helping women learn to manage their homes. Her, the American frugal housewife, went through 33 printings in 25 years. Containing mostly recipes, Child said her book was written for the poor and advised young homemakers to begin humbly. The most comprehensive cookbook of its day, it can still be found at gutenberg.org backslash ebooks backslash 13493. Eventually, Child's politics worked against her and sales of the American frugal housewife declined. Beginning with her novel Hobumuk, Child challenged the conventions of her time. Set in 17th-century Puritan Massachusetts, Hobumuk's main character, Mary Conant, is forbidden by her father to marry her Episcopalian lover. She rebels and marries a native Pequod, one of the first interracial marriages in American literature. The book was not a success, for its advocacy of interracial marriage caused a scandal. She also wrote a historical novel about the Boston Tea Party. In 1831, Child became an active supporter of William Lloyd Garrison in the anti-slavery cause. She saw the cause of African Americans and women as intertwined. She understood intersectionality almost 150 years before the term was coined. She believed African Americans and women were suppressed by white men. Although a women's rights activist, she thought the anti-slavery cause needed to take precedence. In 1833, she published an appeal in favor of that class of Americans called Africans, which argued for the immediate emancipation of slaves. She became a major figure in the abolitionist movement and was elected to the executive committee of the American Anti-Slavery Society and editor of its newspaper, 
the National Anti-Slavery Standard. A founding member of the Massachusetts Women's Suffrage Association, Child also wrote The History of the Conditions of Women in Various Ages and Nations. Working with Lucretia Mott and others, Child inspired future generations of women's advocates. Well, as you nosh your Thanksgiving feast, even in these fractious political times, remember, if nothing else, that it could always be worse, but be thankful for what you have. As you do, Remember that the American holiday of Thanksgiving owes a debt to two 19th century women. One, balancing her own contradictions, was the apostle of conventionality who began to weaken conventionality's bonds by the example of her own unconventional success. The other, right from the beginning, rejected conventionality as she fought injustice wherever she saw it, whether in supporting Native Americans or opposing the horror of slavery or seeking equality for women. As you ponder what to be thankful for, add to your list a note of thanks to Sarah Josepha Hale and Lydia Maria Child. Happy Thanksgiving. And remember, to paraphrase Bing Crosby, you've got plenty to be thankful for. Here is Bing singing a bit more of that classic tune. I've got plenty to be thankful for I haven't got a great big yacht to sail from shore to shore. Still, I've got plenty to be thankful for. I've got plenty to be thankful for. No private car, no caviar, no carpet on my floor. Still, I've got plenty to be thankful for. I've got eyes to see with, ears to hear with, arms to hug with, lips to kiss with, someone to adore. How could anybody ask for more? My needs are small, I buy them all at the five and ten cent store. Oh, I've got plenty to be thankful for. The American Tapestry, rich in its many threads and stories, challenging 21st century Americans to remember our ideals and to live up to the better angels of our natures. I'm Andrew Roth, scholar-in-residence at the Jefferson Educational Society in Erie, Pennsylvania. Thank you for listening. Remember, past episodes can be found on the WQLN website, MPR1, Spotify, Google, and other podcast sites. Next month, we'll explore the backstory of several of America's American-made Christmas and holiday songs. Who wrote Jingle Bells, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, Let It Snow, and, of course, White Christmas. That's next month on the American Tapestry Project. Comments and questions can be sent to me at roth at jeserie.org. Thank you. <laughs>